Section 3 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 23 The War in Its Embers. There can be no doubt that the new English ministry came into power with hope and expectation to put an end to the war at once. The time, however, did not seem quite propitious for any sudden announcement of such a policy. It was not that there could be supposed to exist on the part of Louis XIV any desire for the continuance of hostilities. Nothing could be more clear to the minds of the English statesmen in office than the fact that King Louis had had quite enough of the struggle and was most anxious to bring it to an end if he could only obtain some concession or compromise which might enable him to get out of the difficulty without any actual surrender of all his claims and by consequence a sacrifice of his dignity. The two great opponents were at this period of the struggle in very much the same condition of anxiety and embarrassment. Each had now had quite enough of the war, but each had made too definite an assertion of objects and claims, and neither could see a way to any satisfactory settlement. So far as the fortunes of the battlefields were concerned, England had unquestionably been victorious thus far, but the Tory statesmen, who had never from the first had any heart in the strife, were quite content that England should rest upon her laurels if only they could find some plausible reason for proclaiming their willingness to come to terms. France, on the other hand, had now no further hope of gathering laurels from the contest, and her ruler would have been even more glad if some conditions of settlement were suggested which would give him a decent excuse for throwing up the sponge. While the leading powers on both sides thus stood anxious for peace and perplexed as to the means of getting creditably out of the war, an event occurred which seemed to give to both a providential opportunity of reconsidering their position. This event was the death of the Emperor Joseph, which put the Emperor's brother, the Archduke Charles, whom England and her allies were striving to create King of Spain, in what may be called direct succession to the imperial throne. According to the usages of the German states, the new emperor would have to be elected to the imperial position by the vote of the electorate at Frankfurt, but there seemed little doubt that the voices of the electoral states would invest him with the imperial title. The electors, as Bishop Burnet tells us, were all resolved to choose King Charles Emperor. Some delays took place, even at a much more recent date the Germanic Confederation was never inclined to be precipitate in its actions, but after a lapse of nearly six months the due formalities were all accomplished, the electors of Germany saw their way, and the claimant to the Spanish throne was duly proclaimed German Emperor. Here, then, it would certainly seem that a favorable opportunity was given to both the leading states in the war to reconsider their pretensions and their objects. 
England and her allies could hardly entertain any serious desire to make the new German emperor also the new king of Spain. Louis the Fourteenth, on his part, could not but see that the chances of a peaceful settlement satisfactory to him were much advanced by the event, which to all intents and purposes must modify most seriously the policy of his allied opponents. For the time, neither disputants seem inclined to come forward as the first and most eager to suggest a final settlement. The state of affairs at Frankfurt itself appeared for the moment as if it were destined to bring about a prompt renewal of the war. The idea got abroad among the Allies that the French monarch was planning a military movement to interfere with the election at Frankfurt, and orders were dispatched from Vienna to Prince Eugène, the purport of which was that he must withdraw all the troops he had in Flanders under the command of Marlborough and take up a position of defense against the expected invasion of German soil by the French troops. Marlborough, of course, was much weakened by the withdrawal of Prince Eugène and his men, and the knowledge of this fact appears to have inspired the French commander, Marshal Villars, with the unlucky boast that he was now in a position to prevent the great English commander from passing into the territory of France. Marlborough promptly gave proof that his old capacity for accomplishing that which was proclaimed impossible had not yet deserted him. He proved without delay that Marshal Villars had made a signal mistake. He advanced into France and captured the town of Bouchain in what is now described as the northern department of France. We may linger for a moment over this achievement because it was the last success of any importance in Marlborough's military career. The plan to besiege Bouchain was entirely Marlborough's own. Marlborough's idea was that as soon as his advance on the place came to be understood by the French, it would induce them to make some effort for the definite purpose of preventing the capture and thus give him, with his comparatively small force, an opportunity of encountering a large part of their army on something like equal terms. On the other hand, he felt convinced that the effect must be most disheartening to the French side if Bouchain could be captured without opposition in the very sight of his enemy's forces. The Dutch commissioners and some of the general officers were disinclined to adopt Marlborough's plan, believing it impossible, or at least very unlikely, that a well-fortified place, provided with an effective garrison and standing in the midst of a large marshy ground, could be captured within a mile or so of a French force superior in numbers to Marlborough's own. All about the Duke, says Bishop Burnet, studied to divert him from so dangerous an undertaking, since a misfortune in his conduct would have furnished his enemies, by whom, no doubt, Burnet met his enemies at home, with the advantages that they waited for. Marlborough, however, saw his way and was determined to go on. The siege lasted twenty days, and Marshal Villars made some efforts to interfere with Marlborough's movements, but the efforts proved wholly in vain, and the garrison of Bouchain had to capitulate, 
and to be made prisoners of war. Burnet declares that, as this was reckoned the most extraordinary thing in the whole history of the war, so the honour of it was acknowledged to belong wholly to the Duke of Marlborough, as the blame of a miscarriage in it must have fallen singly on him. Besides Bouchain, Marlborough took one or two other places as if to make clear to his opponents that they had better not vaunt themselves too lightly and too freely as to their power of resistance. These may be regarded as the last of his military successes, and such as they were, they gave him no chance of surrounding himself with a new blaze of glory. They were but incidents which proved that the fire within him had not flickered. It remained for his own sovereign and his own government to put the fire completely out. Meanwhile, the government in England had planned out elaborately, at Bolingbroke's instigation, an expedition against Quebec with the object, apparently, of bringing sudden pressure to bear upon the French from a new field of hostilities. To many observers at the time, it hardly seemed possible that there could be any serious purpose in this enterprise, so far as the existing campaign was concerned, and this sceptical mood was not discouraged by the fact that the command of the expedition was entrusted to Colonel Hill, the brother of Mrs. Masham, the Queen's new comrade and adviser. In many minds the belief prevailed, and there were apparently good grounds for its existence, that this new undertaking was intended rather as a demonstration against Marlborough than against King Louis. Just at the time it would have been of immense advantage to the Tory government if some sudden success could have been obtained in any military expedition without the presence, the help, or even the cooperating councils of Marlborough. Anything that could have called away even for a moment the attention of the public at home from the achievements of Marlborough and the necessity for upholding his command, anything that could have shown the possibility of winning victories without him, would have been of inestimable advantage to the purposes of the ministry just then. The doom of Marlborough was already fully determined, and come what might, that doom was to be carried into force. But it would have seemed in some degree less inappropriate and less paradoxical if it could have been put into effect immediately after any manner of success that proved that Marlborough was not indispensable to British victory. The result of the enterprise was only the most dismal of failures, and it might, under other auspices, have acted as a serviceable warning to the ministry. The whole expedition was badly arranged and miserably provided. The transport ships were too few and were left wanting in all necessary supplies. As Burnet says, a commissioner of the victualling then told me he could not guess what made them be sent out so ill-furnished, for they had stores lying on their hands for a full supply. The understanding, according to Burnet, was that the ships had supply enough to carry them onto the shores of New England, but the elements were against their arriving within the necessary time, for they were harassed by continual gales off that coast, 
and they were badly provided with pilots as with everything else. The ill-managed fleet met with a violent storm at the mouth of the St. Lawrence. Many of the vessels became mere wrecks, and there was nothing for it but that the unlucky fleet should return to England as quickly as possible and with as little further damage as possible. Britannia certainly did not rule the waves on that occasion, and the struggle for the possession of Quebec had to be put off to some more favorable opportunity. The Quebec expedition was not by any means the most important undertaking which the ministers were endeavoring to carry out on their own account. Negotiations had already actually been opened by the Tory government with the ruler of France. These negotiations were begun and conducted for some time in perfect secrecy, at least in such secrecy as could well be kept up between two hostile sets of negotiators, each of whom was alike distrustful of the other and alike willing to commit and betray the other where any stratagem could have that effect. The Tory ministers were fully determined to come to terms with Louis whether their allies were willing or unwilling to accept such a policy. They did not trust the allies and did the best they could to keep from them all knowledge of the arrangements which were the subject of intercommunication between England and France. For the purpose of the ministers, it was above all things necessary to get rid of the Duke of Marlborough. The objects of the Tory government and those of Marlborough were absolutely irreconcilable. Marlborough was at least perfectly consistent in his policy. Quite apart from the victorious general's ambition to continue the war, which he had thus far carried on so successfully, until he should have made its success complete and final, Marlborough, as a statesman, was utterly opposed to the idea of giving up the main objects of the struggle, just when the struggle seemed on the very eve of accomplishing all the purposes for which it had been undertaken. He was still resolute in pressing on the government his long-cherished plans for an advanced movement which would make the soil of France the closing battlefield of the war, and by means of which he felt convinced that the terms of peace would be dictated by English plenipotentiaries in the French capital. Of late, he had received no encouragement from home for the carrying out of his policy, and it had always been difficult for him to inspire his allied commanders with any enthusiasm for his projects. Still, it was one thing for the government at home to withhold all encouragement from Marlborough's definite and daring plans, and quite another thing to seek for peace on almost any terms, while the man who declared that he could compel the enemy to accept his terms was yet in the command of the Allied armies. In point of fact, a peace could not have been made in spite of Marlborough and over Marlborough's head, while he was yet actually the commander-in-chief of English forces, nor was it possible for the ministry to make England believe that the Queen's civil advisers knew more about war than Marlborough did, and were better judges than he, 
as to the value of the plans which he proclaimed to be sure of success. It had become clear to the minds of the Tory statesmen that so long as Marlborough remained in command, he would still be the actual and not the nominal commander. He was in the way, and means must be found for getting him out of the way. We shall presently have to give some account of this most extraordinary chapter of history. Just now it is better to describe at once the few incidents of importance which mark the closing scenes of the whole war. The negotiations between England and France for terms of settlement were not carried out in such secrecy that the full meaning of them could not come to the knowledge of Prince Eugène. Marlborough's brilliant comrade well understood the purport of all that was going on, and he soon became convinced that the English ministers were determined to enter into arrangements with France, whether England's allies approved of the terms of settlement or were utterly opposed to them. Eugène took prompt and active but ineffectual steps to prevent Queen Anne's government from following out the policy on which they were evidently bent, the policy of bringing the war to a close under whatever conditions and obtaining peace on any terms. He hurried over to England and there did all he could to press his views upon the Queen's advisers. He was, of course, received with great respect and even cordiality. He was overwhelmed with civilities, with marks of royal favor and of popular homage, and he became, in fact, the hero of the hour. But his representations were all in vain. His advice was urged upon ears deaf to any such suggestions. The question had already been settled in the minds of the Tory statesmen, and it had ceased to be with them a matter of argument. Eugène went back to his place in the campaign, or rather it should be said, to the place where a campaign had lately been going on. He had now to cooperate with a new British commander. The Duke of Ormond had been appointed to hold the highest position in the army of England. Prince Eugène received from the states of the United Provinces the command of their forces and was assured that he should have their full support in any course he thought it needful to adopt. The whole force of the Allied powers was now considerably stronger in numbers than any army the French king could put into the field. Bishop Burnet comments on the sensation which the news of their superiority created in England. Now would have been the time for the forward movement so often recommended by Marlborough, but even if the Duke of Ormond had been a soldier of Marlborough's capacity, he could have done nothing to carry out that policy. He was only a nominal and not a real commander. He was sent out with instructions which amounted in substance to an order that he was to do nothing without the previous sanction of the authorities at home. No military commander with any genuine claims to such a position would have accepted the office of commander-in-chief under conditions which made it impossible for him to put his capacity to any practical test. The present ministry, Burnet observes, had other views, 
they designed to set the queen at liberty from her engagements by these alliances and to disengage her from treaties. Burnet also observes that the Duke of Ormond was well satisfied both with his instructions and his appointments, for he had the same allowances that had been lately voted criminal in the Duke of Marlborough. This seems perhaps a little hard upon the Duke of Ormond, but it is quite certain that he had humiliated himself by consenting to take, under whatever conditions, a purely nominal command, and to submit to be, as he was scoffingly called by many at the time, a general of straw. The next incident in the story was the arrangement of an armistice between the English and the French. Then the Duke received sudden orders to separate the English soldiers and all soldiers who were receiving English pay from the forces of the Allied States. A large number of these soldiers who, although receiving English pay, according to the arrangements of the campaign, were not British subjects or Englishmen, refused positively to obey any such orders and to detach themselves for the purpose of forming a separate army under the Duke of Ormond. Their governments, seeing clearly that the whole alliance was coming to an end, backed them up in their refusal. There was nothing left for Ormond but to withdraw those English officers and soldiers who were willing to follow him in this unexpected reconstruction, and the result was that he took with him only about 12,000 followers. The truth was that England had all along been working out the campaigns rather with her funds than with her own native-born soldiers, and that the number of British subjects enrolled in these forces was small indeed when compared with the numbers of mercenary troops from various German states whom England had hired and paid to do the work of fighting. Down to a much later date, the forces of England engaged on various foreign battlefields and even on battlefields at home, at all events on battlefields in Ireland, were always made up in a large proportion by Hessians and other Germans who were willing to accept the pay of the English crown and do such business of fighting as might be put into their hands. Nothing, it is said, could exceed the dissatisfaction and even the indignation with which the English officers and soldiers received these new orders and the unwillingness with which they obeyed the command to separate themselves from comrades who had fought side by side with them, who had shared their dangers and privations, and helped them win their victories on so many fields of hard-fought battle. The orders, however, had to be obeyed, and they were obeyed, whatever might have been the personal emotions of many of the brave Englishmen who had to carry them out. When all was done, Eugène still remained in command of an army numbering about 100,000 men, and Eugène himself saw no reason why the campaign might not even yet be carried on with good hopes of success. His army was in a strong position and occupied what was still called the road to Paris, that road which, there can be little reason to doubt, would have been followed despite all resistance if Marlborough could have had his own way and were still at the head of the Allied forces. But it soon became clear that the English troops had been the heart and the moving spirit of the campaign, 
and when they were withdrawn from their central place in the armed body, there was not much chance left for Eugène to accomplish anything like a substantial success. Eugène was then besieging the town of Landrecy, and if he could succeed in capturing that place, there seemed nothing for the time to stay his further advance into French territory. Eugène's movements still excited great alarm in France, or at all events in the court of King Louis, although nobody could have known better than the king that the union of the great allies was fast coming to an end. Louis was in one of his heroic moods, in one of those moods which he was wont to relieve by the issuing of some portentous proclamation or the writing of some grandiloquent letter. He wrote a letter to Marshal Villars, assuring the marshal that his sovereign had perfect trust in him, but declaring that if, by some unexpected misfortune, Villars should fail in preventing the enterprise of Prince Eugène, the king himself would rally all his troops around him, would take the command, and would perish on the battlefield at the head of his men, or would die in defense of his country. This can only be regarded under all the accompanying conditions as a display of the mock heroic. Nobody could have known better than King Louis how little intention there was on the part of the most important of the Allies to press the campaign too closely against the sovereign with whom they were already conducting negotiations for a peaceful settlement. King Louis must also have known very well that Eugène's lines were so widely extended as to render a rapid concentration impossible, and that if a strong attack were made on one part of Eugène's army, it would be extremely difficult for him to receive prompt succor from another. Nobody would be rash enough or unkind enough to say that Louis, if driven to such a desperate resolve, would not have carried it out to the end. The whole life and training of great sovereigns usually prepares them to meet the worst danger with dignity and courage, but it may be taken for granted that King Louis knew perfectly well, as he penned this dispatch, that there was not the slightest chance of his being driven to so sublime a resolution. Villar, however, seems to have become animated with the determination to show that he could do something. He took advantage of the difficulty imposed upon his enemy by the comparative weakness of Eugène's two widely extended lines in many parts. He made what seemed to be an attack on Eugène's camp outside Londrecy, and then, suddenly changing his apparent plan, when Eugène had been put somewhat off his guard, he won a decided victory over Eugène's troops at Denain. So sudden was Villars' attack that Eugène himself was taken wholly by surprise and was not on the battlefield in time to retrieve, if he could have retrieved, the fortune of the fight. He was even compelled to give up the siege of Landrecy, and Villars actually recaptured three of the towns which the Allies had taken, one of them being that very town of Bouchain, the capture of which had been the last achievement of Marlborough's military career. The war had burnt to its last embers. The defeat of Eugène's troops had naturally the effect of making the Dutch more than ever determined to come to a peaceful settlement with France on the best terms possible 
for the security of their own country. It was clear to them, no doubt, that when the English withdrew from the struggle, and when the latest event in it was a defeat for those of the Allies who still lingered on the field, there was little hope for any further continuance of military operations. The war of the Spanish succession was over. Prince Eugène lived to fight other battles and on other fields. It was still his fortune to inflict defeats upon the Turks, as he had done in his earlier days, to scare many a Turkish encampment, as the German poet Freiligoth puts it in one of his spirited ballads. But so far as these volumes are concerned, the brilliant figure of Eugène appears no more. End of section 3